The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning and welcome to this edition of the Blue Crew Medicine Podcast. Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about MISC. Uh, today with us we've got Nathan Freeman who's a second year PGM fellow here at UMC. He's also a graduate of UMC Medical School. Uh, Aiden Dancy, who's one of our acute care nurse practice in the PZR. You also see him on PEDS Transport, and he's still part-time with AirCare with us. And then the Will Holyfield, one of our acute care nurse practice here in the ER as well, and he's also on our PEDS Transport. Uh, I'm Will Appleby, one of the AirCare CCPs is with you here today. So when we talk about MISC, what are we talking about? So let's get the definition just out there. Um, per the CDC, MISC is a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children as an illness in pediatric population less than 21 years of age that presents with a documented or subjective fever greater than 38C for greater than or equal to 24 hours with lab evidence of inflammation and multi-system involvement of two or more organ systems. Severe illness with no alternative diagnosis and either recent or current SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, that's a mouthful. So the short version of that is they're less than 21 years old, lab evidence of inflammation, multi-system involvement, and they've had COVID-19 within four weeks, um, whether it's a positive test or a recent exposure. So one of the biggest challenges seems to be for everyone we've talked to, both pre-hospital and in-hospital, is just simply identification, recognition of the disease. It's one of those things that kind of seems to be on the back burner for a lot of people, but how do we get it to the forefront? So what do you, when y'all think about it, what, what makes you want to immediately in the back of your head, all right, this, this could be MIC? I think uh, anytime you have a kid now, you know, years ago we may not have, MIC wasn't prevalent, and we would just assume these kids were in a septic shock due to some kind of bacterial infection or some kind of uh, cardiogenic shock. But now with the, you know, the pandemic, it just – it has to be on the back burner, and it's not something that you usually diagnose right off the bat just seeing somebody. It's kind of a illness of exclusion after you've made sure that there's nothing um, bacterial that you immediately needed to treat. The way I've kind of changed the way I've thought when I see kids with fever has been kind of have it in your forefront every time you have a kid with fever and then branch out from there. So like with the definition says two organ system involvements if you have a kid that comes in and they seem like a viral gastro but have had fever for a prolonged amount of time and a rash it's like okay viral gastros don't have rashes that needs to kind of pop up as uh, that's kind of an odd presentation maybe i need to think about misc and then with anyone with fever you ask about covid exposure if they give you that oh yeah grandma had covid four five weeks ago or someone in the house did that should kind of spark you to start asking a little bit more about you know, do you have cold symptoms? Do you have flu symptoms? Do you have GI symptoms? If you had rashes, kind of ask some of your Kawasaki type stuff. And a lot of people think it you have, the patient has to have a positive COVID test. It's just exposure Correct. according to the definition. Correct. So Correct. like Correct. from a pre-hospital standpoint, it's just as important like everything else, get the best history you possibly can because you may get a better history on scene than we'll ever get in the hospital because that person, oh, well, I had COVID three weeks ago. I can't go to the hospital. And somebody may not think to bring it up. In my opinion, 
kind of going into the history like you were talking about, when, when you're taking a history, it's pretty uniform for all patients, especially really sick patients. But the way it is now, I mean, with you know COVID basically endemic is we just assume everybody's been exposed to it at some point. So if they come in and they're, you know, super ill and, you know, you can tell there's multi-system involvement and they're in a shock state, you know, it's got to cross your mind and um, you can pretty much just assume they've been exposed whether they truly know that they have or not. So when you all come and we see them, just looking across the room, what do you, what do you see these kids? Do you see like a general sick kid or something that sticks out in your head as far as assessment-wise that – may lead you down that road of, hey, you know, they're pale or they're diaphoretic or they, you know, like an MI, you know. So, yeah, I mean, once you get that across-the-room assessment, it's generally an ill-appearing child. Um, most of them won't appear toxic, per se, but they'll just look like they don't feel well. They'll look kind of like a flu child would look. Um, you know, you may see some URI stuff. Just anecdotally, from my experience, you're going to see about, 80 to 90 percent of them complain of belly pain or some sort of abdominal symptom vomiting diarrhea in conjunction with the fever um, some of them may be a little bit tachypnic it just kind of depends um, seen it rashes you'll see like facial type rashes just across again across the room assessment um, but yeah the main thing is a true misc child will appear ill to you either from me to Nathan or from me to you. I think something Aiden said was really important is GI symptoms, belly pain type stuff. So there was actually a big review article came out for the whole like U.S. patient population for MIC about two weeks ago. And uh, like 80 to 85% of these kids just come in with GI symptoms and then another 70 have rash. Only 5% have respiratory stuff. So everyone thinks of COVID as a respiratory illness because that's what it is in the acute phase. But when you have MIC, just because they don't have cough, fever, something like that, don't forget about MIC because most of it's going to be your GI symptoms, your belly pain, your vomiting, um, rashes, ill-appearing kids. So, again, we keep comparing this Kawasaki's because it's very similar. They're going to be real, real irritable, just like your Kawasaki's kid. They're real fussy. You can't consult them. Kind of an appendicitis picture, too, because like, I can remember I, I had the – distinct pleasure of having the first MISC kid come into UMC and he presented just like an appendicitis workup and you know we got an ultrasound they called it they you know but he continued to kind of decline clinically he ended up on levofed and high flow in the ICU well they took him to X-Lap him in the operating room and his appendix is fine and that's kind of how we started branching off. And that's kind of been what I think about now, especially with these kids with this belly pain. It looks a lot like an appy, but don't let that fool you. And not every kid will come in in shock. That's usually kind of like the end stage of it. So if they come in on like day one of fever with belly pain and rash and you identify MS, MIC, you can get them to you know tertiary center for treatment before they even get into that shock state. By the time you see that shock state, that's probably day three, four, five of their fever. So just because they have good vitals outside of their fever, maybe some tachycardia, don't forget that MIC is still on your differential. You talk about looking at the CDC stuff. They bring up about a list that seems like a mile long of lab values. To y'all, what actually matters? A lot of these, a lot of outside centers we do, we get to work with every day, they don't have the pleasure of all the rapid stuff we do here. What do you, what do y'all use in a quick kind of in a down and dirty in a hurry? What makes what makes a difference to 
kind of lead you down that road. So I think I know our in our department and then, you know, across some other places around the country, you're basically looking for general inflammation at first in your first set of labs. And, you know, that's going to be an elevated CRP, usually four or greater, an ESR 40 or greater. And then a lot of the times in conjunction with that, you'll see hyponatremia and then you'll see thrombocytopenia. Um, those labs, I know at least for me, and I think for most of our department, kind of clue us in like, oh, okay, maybe we have something going on here, and then we dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, if you could just choose three things that you would get would be CRP, CBC, and a CMP. Just like Aiden said, if you have your CRP elevated, you have your platelet count low, and then if you do have the capability of getting differential on your white count, your lymphocytes being low, and then your hyponatremic, that right there, you meet criteria, you go ahead and transfer and don't worry about any other secondary stuff. And that, a lot of time, that's what even what we do in the PZR is we get those screening labs, we say, okay, they meet criteria, we call ID and they get admitted, and we don't do any more than that. I think it depends on how ill they look also. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, if somebody shows up at an outside hospital and in shock, you're going to order a whole list of things. Um, some may be helpful, some may be not. When they present here with us in the ER, you know, if they're in the early stages and they just had fever for a day or two and they're still relatively okay appearing and we're just kind of do that initial screening, we do have a, a tiered system of labs that we draw. Um, and like Nathan was saying, the labs that he suggested. Um, but if they're in a shock state, you're going to basically bypass all that and just get, you know, the, all three of the tiered systems labs. Yeah, I mean, I would say for, you know, small centers outside ERs looking to transfer, like anytime you suspect shock, obviously work that up. But specifically talking about MISC, I would get a lactate. I would get a CMP or a BMP. I would get a CBC and just generalized inflammatory markers, CRP, ESR. Those four or five things are going to be able to tell you what you need to know. Do I need to escalate this? Do I not? And then once you have that information – most places will have their idea of where they're going to send these kids, but, you know, a PICU needs to be in your mind. They obviously need to accept pediatric patients, but they need to have a PICU to be able to manage them adequately if they continue to decline. And then on that tiered system, there is, like, troponins on there because we always, you know, are concerned about cardiac involvement, but it's more of a screening thing to where if it's positive, like you've got elevated proponents, you're like, okay, this kid definitely has, you know, some evidence of myocarditis, need to be general fluids. But just because it's negative doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have some degree of cardiac dysfunction. So it's one of those where if it's positive, great, you know they got some cardiac involvement. If it's negative, don't be 100% reassured by that. Still be cautious of um, cardiac involvement. It's troponins seem to be like kind of a late thing. Everything I've read, everything yeah. I've seen personally, my clinical practices, it's always more later on than the ones that are super sick and shock. Yeah, they're going to be bumped. But right. the ones that are, if you're catching it really early, like that day one or day two, don't, like you said, don't keep it out of the back of your head. Right. Usually your multi-system involvement, you know, by definition, is not necessarily CV early on. You know, you're going to have the skin or cutaneous manifestations. The GI manifestations are usually the, the big things in the beginning. Yeah, you'll see CV and respiratory usually late. If you're if you're chasing CV and respiratory, you're fixing to get busy real quick. So. How do y'all feel about ultrasounds and CT scans? I know some some clinical practice stuff you read or see. Some people are you know scan everybody on their mama. I mean, CT scan. I mean, 
clinical picture. I mean, if they have a tender abdomen, they're peritonitic, scan them. Yeah. yeah. Same with ultrasound. If if their clinical picture fits, you know, shock, and you're worried about uh, decrease LV or left ventricular function, cardiac involvement at all, then, um, you know, a quick bedside ultrasound or even an echo um, would be more definitive. Get an estimate on your ejection fraction real quick and kind of better guide your treatment. You know, you may not need a bunch of beta-2 stuff and, or you may need some more bipyridine-type things. And a lot of times on your bedside ultrasounds of your heart, early on they'll have normal systolic function but they'll have some degree of diastolic dysfunction that we as ER providers don't typically measure on focus. And so just because you have a normal uh, left ventricular ejection fraction, again, still gentle with fluids, you're going to, you may have some diastolic dysfunction that you can't see. But um, usually late in the game, like Will was saying, you're going to see some, uh, you're going to see some issues on your echo. Which leads us down to managing these kids. So is there a, Y'all kind of briefly talked on it a little bit, but is there a, is there a tiered system of management? Do y'all like just go ahead and get super aggressive with these kids right off the back, or is there something that makes you think, hey, let's slow up? Do we kind of need to differentiate some things before we go that route, or how do y'all feel about it? I think it's just, I mean, how early they present shock versus not, you know, are they compensated or are they, you know, all the way down the road and they need aggressive therapy? Um, uh, kind of the main thing is if they're if they're well into this days into it and you're starting to see uh, cardiovascular involvement, you do have to be a little judicious with your fluids. Um, but otherwise, you know, these kids. I know we're talking about kind of one of these points on your sheet is antibiotics versus not antibiotics because I mean, yeah, it is a, a virus, but MIC is not necessarily a it's not an active infection. You know, this is an inflammatory process. You're not actually treating a, a bug per se. But, yeah, but you're also, you have somebody that's presented in shock with fever, and you can't say definitively that this is MIC without making sure that they don't have some variation of sepsis also. So we're always going to get cultures and treat these kids as if they were septic until proven otherwise yeah it's never wrong to start them off with antibiotics usually rocepin's good enough if they're just a normal kid um if you're concerned about any belly issues appendicitis or um any abscesses anything like that you know add flagell if they're immunocompromised add cefepime if you like they have a bad pneumonia or seem to have really bad respiratory symptoms add vank um the thing with fluids is even if they are hypotensive, still very easy with those. Start 10 cc's per kg and then reassess after each bolus. And that means stethoscope on the chest because what they'll have is, you know, crackles in the base like your pulmonary edema um, picture. Um, it's different than how we usually have thought of sepsis in that you give up to 60 per kg of fluids and then you're like, oh, well, they're refractory to it. Start uh, pressors you tend to start pressures earlier in these kids. Um, sometimes you give 20 to 30 per kg of fluids, they start having crackles and you got to stop and you got to give fluids. Um, it's like we had a case of a kid who had met all the MIC, had a normal bedside echo, was like a fine for the floor type of kid. And he got 40 per kg of fluids and started on maintenance and a half because he looked dry. 
And then about four hours later on the floor, he's got pulmonary edema and needed uh, pressors and needed to go to the PICU. So, again, these kids change very rapidly. So um, don't be afraid to go to pressors earlier than you usually do. Yeah, I mean, just to touch on that, if MISC is in your differential, then just small aliquots. Fluids are not necessarily bad, but you just need to really pay attention to what you're doing with them. And this is a patient where starting a low-dose vasopressor is going to be the right answer, typically, if you're still having trouble chasing pressures or, you know, cap refill or, you know, end organ perfusion, however you're judging that. Um and I think, you know, talking about vasopressor choices, typically the go-to, you know, with these kids is low-dose levo right off the bat um, and then just kind of adjust as needed. Usually low-dose levo is more than enough to kind of get them over the edge to keep them perfusing. Um, if you find yourself you're having more cardiac involvement, you know, you may look at things like dobutamine or milrinone. Um, I know a lot of these Outside centers may not be comfortable with those things, but I mean, it's just something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Um, and a lot of the times they may not have progressed that far. So that may be something that we may not even add when they get to our ER. They may, that may get added in the PICU, but it's always something to just be thinking about when you're thinking about that cardiac involvement. A lot of, a lot of people would go, whether it's outside of here or a lot of smaller centers, small EMS services, they might not have Levo. How do y'all feel about Epi with these kids? Early on when we were seeing them in the ER, I know multiple times I've put them on epi and they've done fine. Um, and usually, like Aiden said, it's usually low dose. You'd be surprised that, like, they're refractory to fluid management and then you throw them on a low dose presser and then all of a sudden they're better. Like, it's it's odd the way these kids present where they're hypotensive but they're mentating well. And you're like, that's really weird. And they're, you know, in shot but mentating. And they just need that little whiff of epi or levo to, um, to really get built back up. So... Um, epi is a good bridge to if you've got a hypotensive MIC patient and that's all you have, low dose epi and go ahead and load them on the truck and get them to to um, get them to us. Because like Aiden said, a lot of times we don't even start milling on in the PZR sometimes because you get that initial you know hypotensive drop before you come up, and then milling on's got such a long half life. If you decide to stop it, it's still floating around the system a while. So a lot of times we'll bridge them with epi, just give them to the pick you too. Um, so you're never wrong to go that route if that's the only presser you have. That 0.05 mics per kg per minute kind of thing. Yeah. You just kind of titrate up real slow. Don't don't get super yeah. aggressive with it. Yeah, usually by, you know, titrate up 0.05 and by increments of 0.05. It's very small amounts that you'll need. And not necessarily chasing a number. You know, look at perfusion there, cat refill. You know, lay your hands on the patient, feel their pulses and their, you know, peripheral temperature. And, you know, the number's not such a big deal but you know more the way the kid looks and feels urine output just like you would any other patient in shock look at urine output cap refill don't forget about all the basics just because you're worried about a fancy new diagnosis yeah. you're still treating the patient and a lot of times again the mentating well it's a fancy diagnosis you see you know hypertension you see shock you're worried about these kids uh, a lot of times these kids do great and maintain their own airway and everything. So just because they have MSE and in a shock state, don't worry about intubating them. You may, most likely, you're going to do more harm than good because a lot of the shock MSE is all cardiogenic. So, um, again, they'll be sitting there hanging out with you, acting like a normal kid on epi. You don't need to take the airway. They're, they're usually good, but just a little bit of fluid and some pressors. How do you all feel about steroids? It's one thing that's been 
some literature is very <coughs> pro, some's very like I'm skeptical of it. I think I think generally in, from our perspective in the ER, um, we're usually not initiating it unless they're in a shock state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we kind of leave it up to the the critical care team or, you know, ID or room. You know, there's tons of services that are going to be involved or subspecialists involved with these type patients. Um, so unless they're... Unless they're in a shock state, generally we hold off until they've had a, a more profound workup than what we're going to do downstairs. Yeah, I wouldn't think they would need, you know, routine solumedrol or glucocorticoids or anything like that. But just like any other septic shock patient, like Will said, I mean, if you're considering a second presser, if you get to that point in these kids, then, you know, solucortes should probably come to your mind. Yeah, exactly. And just to give the flip side of that um a lot of times we'll let rheumatology dictate that so not every kid's gonna get steroids so if they're not in a shock state and they're like they look sick but they're not needing pressors anything like that steroids can actually do more harm than good um there was a review that came out three weeks ago where if you had gi symptoms and you gave them pulse steroids you actually increase their chances of a gi perf so you can make things worse so if they're not hypotensive, not needing multiple pressors, don't give it. But if they're set, you know, they're in shock, they need multiple pressors, give it. Talking about definitive treatment or some of the stuff we do here once they get to a level one or level two center, IBIG, is it something that y'all see them do in the ER? Or is that more downstream in the PICU next day? Just so everybody will there. That's all it. That's always been downstream in the PICU. Um, usually we diagnose and get them admitted. Um, mostly just because the time it takes to get it from pharmacy. And um, it is technically a blood product since it's derived, you know, the way it's made. So you have to get consent for it. You have to talk to the families about it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but usually we just let the PI manage it so that they have all of their next tier labs that PEDS ID, PEDS room, pick you all once before we interfere with treatment. Um, and it's not going to help them immediately. It's not going to turn them around to the point where it's going to stave off a transport or make transporting easier. Um, usually it takes 24, 48 hours before you start seeing effects. And so it's, yes, it's the definitive treatment. Yes, it's going to make them feel better in a, a great amount of time, but it's nothing that you have to urgently start. It's not like it's STEMI or something. We're rushing to the cath. We're not rushing to IVIG. It's, right, it's something that, hey, okay, we're going to do tomorrow morning after we get everything lined yeah. up. You know. Especially if you think that they may have something else going on. You don't want to give IVIG and make something bacterial worse. There's right. been a few instances where we think we have MIC. They get admitted. They watch them for a little bit, and it turns out that's not what it is, and they don't start the IVIG yet. And so you're never wrong to avoid it. Kind of similar with steroids, too, why they don't jump to that right off the bat. You know, if they do have uh, bacterial sepsis and, you know, you don't want to load them up with steroids either. And then, but on IVIG, you know, you're talking the infusions are, you know, eight to 16 hours sometimes. So it's, it's usually not something that we're going to worry with. Not conducive to the emergency department, right? And same thing with, you know, outside hospitals in rural Mississippi. You know, they don't have access to a lot of these things. Um, and so just the, uh, you know, like any other emergency medicine topic, I mean, your job's not necessarily to diagnose every single person you're assessing, you're stabilizing, and then you're dispositioning. So whether that be, you know, home admission or transferring out. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a big thing. The MISC is just early recognition, just like shock. I mean, put it on your differential, especially now. I mean, we know we had a big influx of COVID about six weeks ago. So, you know, you know now would be about the time we start seeing this type of stuff. Um, early recognition, symptomatic treatment, whether that's fluids, vasopressors, <clears throat> respiratory support at whatever level, um, and then early disposition, like Will said. Where are they going? How are they getting there? Can they come by ground? Do they need a critical care truck? Do we need to put them in the helicopter? You know, just like you would any other patient. You know, don't let a new fancy diagnosis alter what you do as far as taking care of your patient. We're hopeful that we're starting to see it tail off a bit because yeah. if you look at the CDC numbers for MIC in the U.S., it like Aiden was saying, this is about the time that you would expect it. It usually lags behind your big spikes about four to six weeks and we had the the big omicron spike in january we actually didn't see a spike in mic at the end of february and so hopefully we're not seeing this with this um with this latest variant but it's still out there there's still a few cases so it's still something you need to keep in mind and the big thing is we don't know exactly i mean like will said this is all diagnosis of exclusion you know there hasn't been tons and tons of research papers published on MISC because obviously we've only been dealing with this for going on two years now. So um, if it's one of those things, if you suspect it, you know, go with your gut, but nobody really knows at this point. So. It'll be interesting to see like some of the studies, you know, these kids are, if they're getting them in EMC, they're usually pretty well staying followed by multiple yeah. different services. Mm-hmm, we right. see, see in a couple of years what studies come out of it, how these yeah. kids do, their any long-term effects, all those kinds of things as well. And our PEDS ID department is, uh, and everyone else involved in this multidisciplinary team is actually part of like nationwide MSE studies. So the kids that you're recognizing out in the community and sending to us are actually going towards the stuff that we're going to know. They're part of these studies as far as like recognition and um, clinical course and everything like that. And so, so by y'all recognizing and sending to us, it helps out more than just the patient. It helps out pretty much everyone in the U.S. Great. Guys, appreciate your time. Thanks for today. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you, sir. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.